0: University professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I wanna talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia. So I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers. I am Dr. Christopher Bell, and joining me today on the show is longtime friend of the podcast, Dustin Dunaway. Dustin is a professor of English and Communication at Pueblo Community College, actually, the chair of English and Communication. That's right. Pueblo Community College in beautiful Pueblo, Colorado. Welcome back to the show, Dustin.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be here.
0: Today, what we're going to do is dive into something both Dustin and I study pretty extensively. It figures pretty heavily into a lot of my own work, my own publications, certainly Dustin's as well. We've spent a lot of time talking about this particular topic at comic cons and academic conferences across the country and wherever it is we tend to meet up. And that is the concept of the dystopia. Today we're going to talk about dystopian fiction, what dystopia means, some of our key dystopian stories that we use, and why we continue as a culture to keep coming back to these kinds of stories. So that's how I envision this conversation going. Does that sound approximately like what we discussed? That sounds excellent, yes. All right. So, For you, dear listener, in order to set this conversation up, we should probably, as we normally do on this show, define dystopia before we get our sort of academic fingers into it. For me, as we usually talk about, definitions in academia tend to run a spectrum, so my definition is not necessarily Dustin's definition, and so that's why it's important to sort of get it out of the way early what, what framework we're talking about. So for me, in literature, a dystopia is a futuristic universe. It is an imagined universe. Dystopias almost always take place in sort of science fiction settings, although they can take place also in fantasy settings. Um, it's it's more difficult to do them in a modern setting, but that is possible, which we will talk about when we talk about uh, my, one of my favorite dystopian narratives, which is that of The Handmaid's Tale. We'll come back to that in a second. But the key element of a, of a dystopian story is this idea of Societal control. There's always this idea of oppression in order to create the quote unquote ideal society. And the problem with those ideal societies is that they are usually rigidly maintained through some sort of technological or corporate or bureaucratic or moral or some sort of totalitarian control. There's some sort of system in place that keeps people maintaining that particular society. And it usually ends up shutting out things like dissent. It's it shuts it shuts out independent thought. it shuts out the distribution of information, personal freedoms. Those societies are usually highly propagandistic. There's usually one, figurehead or one president or one entity that everyone is supposed to worship and everyone is supposed to fear. And it has complete control over the society and the citizens of that society, therefore are living under sort of a, what we might call a surveillance state. That is people are constantly monitoring what people are doing in order to make sure that they are maintaining the, dystopic world, the quote-unquote ideal society. They usually fear anything that doesn't fall right in that line. So, you know, the citizens are oftentimes dehumanized and have to conform to these sort of rigid standards. And it's an illusion of a perfect world. And that is sort of the basic tenets, I think, of a dystopian society. Does that... Is there anything else you'd want to add to that?
1: No, that sounds like a pretty good definition. Uh, I think that, at least in literary studies, we tend to conflate the idea of a negative utopia and a dystopia. And a, a negative utopia is one in which, ostensibly, everything is cool, everything is good, but for reasons, there's always a trade off. And I'm sure that we'll talk about that later. A dystopia is a society that is either broken down or in the process of breaking down. The governing structures, the constituent social relations just don't work for us for one reason or another. There's a couple of things sort of moving parts here
0: that I think we should probably talk about. Number one is dystopian fiction isn't new it's not it's not a new thing, and it is a thing that we as a society keep coming back to our very first dystopian stories date all the way back to you know, really the fifteen hundreds if you think about it if you think about actually coining the term utopia that right. that term utopia is from a story in the fifteen hundreds so that's it's it's not new, and if you think about dystopic stories like Gulliver's Travels, for example. That's a very old story. And one of our first sort of instances of dystopia in what we might consider modern fiction. And we keep coming back to these stories over and over again because I think they help us make sense of the world we're living in right now. Which we'll talk about because (laughs) I think it's pretty safe to say that dystopian stories only work
1: in privileged societies. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And also, our parables in general are almost always warning signs. Don't walk through the woods alone. <laughs> always make a plan. Always build your house out of right. bricks rather than straw.
0: If you wander out of the village at night, the wolves are going to get you.
1: Right. Right. And this is just that, but on a, a social level, a societal level.
0: If we don't pay attention to what's happening in our society, here is what is going to happen to
1: us. Right. Right. And it is, in many cases, a slippery slope argument. But at the same time, some of those slopes are pretty slippery. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I mean, it is, but it isn't. One of the things that I often talk with
0: my own students about is that at this point, dystopian fiction is preparation for the actual world in which we live. Our society, particularly American society, is veering dangerously close to canonical dystopia. I mean, the vast income inequality, the ways in which uh, people are segregated in this society still along racial and gender lines, sexual orientation lines, the way that we are constantly being told to bow to some superior central authority, the way that the, Legitimate press is being delegitimized in order to supplant that legitimate press with a state-run media system that says everything that the government does is awesome and everything that you think is a lie or you think is propaganda is not, particularly under the current administration. All of those things are elements of dystopian fiction that are now dystopian nonfiction within this culture.
1: Right. And I think that one could easily make the the argument that we are in a dystopia right now. Oh, yeah. that's That, that we're not slouching there. It's not something that's in the future. It's here right now. And it was just so gradual that most people just got used to it. It's the frog in the boiling pot,
0: so to speak, right? Mm. When you put the frog in the boiling pot, it jumps out. But if the water is cold and you turn the fire on under the frog, it stays in the water because it doesn't know the water's getting hotter. It's the exact same thing I feel like is happening with our society in
1: general. And in most of these tales, it's almost always a gradual breakdown of first this happened and we were okay with it. And then this happened, and we weren't really okay with it, but we we made a deal with ourselves. And then we made another deal, and another deal, and another deal. And then eventually we look back at where we came from, and now we realize how bad things have, have gotten.
0: The other element of that is that all of these dystopian stories start with this quest for a quote-unquote better society. Whether it's something like... The Hunger Games or something like Harry Potter or something like The Handmaid's Tale. All of those stories start with some element within that society wanting to make the rest of society a better place. Think of Fahrenheit 451, which is one of the most classic dystopian stories, the Ray Bradbury story. Although, side note, I discovered recently that I use Fahrenheit 451 all the time as a... Reference point, and the vast majority of people I talk to have never read Fahrenheit four fifty one. Have no idea what I'm talking about. So, listener, if you have never read Fahrenheit four fifty one, please hit pause, go read that book, and come back. And that's going to catch you up to what the nineteen forties.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um at the very least, just you know, the HBO made a movie out of it with Michael B. Jordan. Go watch that. But actually go read go read Um, because go read please although i will say the film is actually fairly good i was actually expecting it to be a series for some reason it certainly could have been but it works it works as a standalone movie as well yeah 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 and of course you know good production values great acting all of that but when we talk about dystopia almost everyone seems to go to 1984. Right. And everyone skips over Brave New World and everyone skips over Fahrenheit 451 and all of these other great classics directly to 1984 and then tries to apply that to every single situation. And to the point where it's lost all meaning because McDonald's takes away some sandwich that they were offering, and it's like, oh, this is just like 1984. You can't have anything that's unhealthy. And someone says, hey, could you please stop using that word? Oh, this is just like 1984. No, it's not. Although I will say that
0: people invoke 1984, but most people haven't read that either.
1: No, because if they had, they wouldn't be invoking it. Right. The one
0: dystopian story that I always come back to as well is a story that I know for a fact most people haven't read but it is the perfect dystopian story and that is the story of Harrison Bergeron. Yes. Harrison Bergeron is a short story. It was written by Kurt Vonnegut in the 1960s, early 1960s, when Kurt Vonnegut was really cementing himself as the as the voice of dystopian fiction. In The 1960s, uh, and sort of becoming this cult figure among the learned college folk, uh, what, what, what we might pass as <laughs> these days, uh, hipsters of the time, really. Harrison Bergeron is this story in which there are two parents, George and Hazel, and they have a son, and their son's name is Harrison. And when Harrison is 14, he discovers that he's really good at stuff. And in that story, if you're good at things, society, in order to make everyone equal, they wreck whatever you're good at. So if you were really pretty, for example, they would make you wear a bag on your head. If you were really strong, they would make you carry around these chains so that, you know, you weren't using your strength against people. Uh, If you were a good dancer, they would make you wear really heavy shoes so that you couldn't dance. Harrison Bergeron is, I like to say it's Atlas Shrugged for smart people. It's it's Atlas Shrugged (laughs) for people who have, you know, reading
1: comprehension ability. That's the, uh, the the best description that I've ever heard, yeah. It's,
0: it's such a good version of what we would think of as a dystopia, this forced equality based on weakening everyone rather than bringing everyone up to their own strength. And this is a key feature in most of the dystopian stories that I read. It's one thing to create a utopian society by bringing everyone up to the same level. It's another thing to create a dystopian society by bringing everyone down to the same level. And that seems to be the key element of most dystopian stories. If you think about, again, something like the Hunger Games, which by the way, is not a great story, but we'll come back to that. But the Hunger Games is a story in which, One small group of people gets to have everything and everyone else has nothing and is serving that one group of people. Well, that levels the playing field of almost everyone in society, because if everyone has nothing, then everyone has the same. The same thing happens in The Handmaid's Tale, where there's a forced equality... But that equality is under oppression. Everyone is equally oppressed, in that case religiously, and therefore everyone is equal. And that was the goal of their society was to create the perfect world by oppressing everyone sort of equally. So... That that seems to be a key feature in most of these kinds of stories.
1: One of the other key features is this streak of libertarianism that runs through everything. Because that's that Harrison Bergeron thesis, for lack of a better word, is what both the libertarian, classical, liberal set, and also many of the, the more liberal Republicans have been arguing. Which is, if you just take the chains off of us, we, we will be able to excel uh, and then it will all trickle down. Whereas if you look at something, uh, you know, that was the argument against something like affirmative action, which is what you're doing is you're putting the shackles on me so that someone else can catch up, which is not really fair to, to people who excel. And that's been kind of the, uh, the mantra for the last 45 years in our political discourse. Which is patently ridiculous, by the way.
0: (laughs) I will lay on that grenade. I will be the one to say it. That's patently ridiculous. The entire idea of we don't need to put shackles on the successful because the successful will trickle down to the unsuccessful is demonstrably false. All you need to do is look at Jeff Bezos and understand how demonstrably false that narrative is.
1: I would agree, yeah. But it's the Harrison Bergerons and it's the Atlas Shrugs and Fountainheads and all of those things that prime us to have this template for understanding the world. And that makes it easier for us to swallow that pill, to to say, okay, well, you remember this happened in Harrison Bergeron, this happened in Atlas Shrugged. And so now it's easy for me to have access to that schema in my brain of I'm being oppressed because I could be a really, you know, know, I could be a millionaire. I could be an entrepreneur. I'm a future millionaire, but government is getting in my way. Right. Because that's the through narrative is that
0: it's the system itself that is creating the dystopia, which removes the reality of the human element of dystopic fiction. It's not the system that's holding people down. It is very specific people within a society who have the power to oppress other people. And that's the bottom, that's the foundation of dystopic fiction. If you think about we'll keep using these examples because we have. If you think about the Hunger Games, it's not the system that keeps people oppressed. It is literally President Snow. He is the oppressor in that tale, and if he is removed, the system falls apart. If you think about the Handmaid's Tale, it is that small group of leaders that are in charge of society that make it seem like it's the system, but it's not. It's actually like five people who are oppressing that entire society. That is the key feature I feel like in many of these dystopic fictions, that is also the key feature in actual society. It is It is very much the idea that if we can get people to believe the system is oppressing them, it takes all of the pressure off of the actual human beings who are doing the oppressing. It is a very small group of economically, super wealthy people who are implementing all of these oppressive systems within a society and then using the media system in order to convince everybody no it's actually that that poor guy living next to you took your job that's that that it removes
1: the human element of it right and i've actually heard that argument politically that I I think it was during the uh, the Bush administration, right around the time we were going to war in Iraq. And there were a lot of people protesting. There were a lot of, you know, it was less popular than the the war in Afghanistan. And there were a lot of people saying, hey, the president should not have this power. And the refrain for that was, well, this is the problem with having a strong central government. (laughs) It's like, no, it's not. We've had a strong central government for like 200 years. But... This is the first time, well, this is an example of a time in which this power is being abused. And that really seems to be one of those things where we're taking the wrong message from these dystopic uh, narratives, which is, in most cases, it's not we shouldn't have governance or government at all. It's we should be on the lookout. As you like to say, we need a bouncer. We need someone to frisk the, the people before they get into the club. And that is supposed to be what our media is for. That's supposed to be what elections are for. But too often, we just don't do that.
0: Well, no, because it requires an informed public. Which is why there is such, within any dystopian story, one of the very first things that happens is a takeover of distribution of information. It's the propaganda machine because...
1: You have to be able to distribute that narrative. Right. That's where 1984 actually is a really good example. Right. Because the government comes in, they take over the language. They replace certain words with better sounding, nicer words. But what really happens is, and one of the things that you and I as communication scholars always tend to study is the the linguistics of it. You use a certain word, it's a nicer word, but the phenomenon is still just as insidious. So that is one way in which authoritarian rule can change things. Like we don't we don't torture people. We don't have oppression. We don't have economic disparity. Uh, everyone is a future millionaire or a potential millionaire. If we frame it like this, then things are much nicer and much softer. There's actually a really good scene in the Dick Cheney movie, Vice, where they have a man playing Frank Luntz, who is a Republican strategist, who's famous for testing out different verbiage. So one of the, the main examples is the estate tax where you die. You, if you have more than $2 million that you leave to your, to your kids, then the government taxes that. And it's been really difficult for people to try to repeal the, the estate tax. But if you call it the death tax, then everybody hates it because they, Oh, they're taxing me when I die. God, God, That's so oppressive when it only applies to, you know, like a handful of people.
0: This is why also the, what you said reminded me, this is another reason why Fahrenheit 451 is such a good example as well, because the first thing that happens is we realize that the firemen are not people who fight fires. They're people who come into other people's homes and burn all their books, Because, again, the distribution of information is what has to go first. The words have to go. It's why, in most dystopian stories, one of the key features is that nobody reads. Or if they do read, it's why the things that they read are so censored. In Harry Potter, for example, everyone reads the Daily Prophet. Nobody talks about the fact that the Daily Prophet is a propaganda machine for the ministry of magic. Harry Potter is an incredibly dystopian story. It's why in one of my favorite dystopian stories that I finally have gotten my daughter hooked on, which I'm super excited about because it's so great, a series of unfortunate events in a series of unfortunate events. One of the things that Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket continually returns to is that the newspaper, the daily punctilio is trash it's a trash rag and it spreads lies and misinformation all the time and one of the ways the heroes can tell who the heroes are and who the heroes are not is whether or not they are well read whether or not they read things other than the daily punctilio there's a really great scene in the slippery slope which is the 10th book where quigley quagmire one of the heroes says They meet him for the first time, the Baudelaire's, Violet, Klaus, and Sonny meet him for the first time, and they say, how do we know you're not a villain? And he says, you don't. But you can tell that I'm well-read, and in my experience, well-read people are less likely to be evil. And I think that that's
1: such a good concept for when we talk about dystopia. Right, and that brings up kind of a plug that I want to throw out there of a, a book that was just released in August. Hey, hold that
0: thought. Let's take a short break here. We'll be back in two and two. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show.
1: So you were saying? It's called Vox, and it's by an author uh, named Christina Dockler. And in this present-day dystopian society, there is a president who is aligned with this far-religious right figure. He uses the evangelical vote to get in, and his first act is to limit women to 100 words per day. They get a little Fitbit-type thing on their wrist. It keeps track of the number of words that they say. And if they go over 100, it delivers a shock. And for every word over 100, it increases the shock up to about 200. And at 200, you will just get shocked till you lose consciousness. And the protagonist in the story is a woman who is a sociolinguist. So for her, she's hit hardest by this because language is her life. And she also happens to be raising a daughter who is right at that age where you either use your words or you start to lose them. Uh, right around that four, five, six area where if you don't speak, if you don't read, if you don't use your words, your your capacity for learning is limited. So She's kind of looking down the barrel of this gun, and it's been about a year since they instituted this, and she's forced into trying to find a way to raise her daughter in a society where women are not allowed words. And words become this commodity then, like you have to choose which words you use very carefully, and you're not allowed to read And you're not allowed to read to your child because you only have a finite amount of words. It's one of those stories that's kind of a spiritual successor to The Handmaid's Tale. But for someone like you and someone like me, who are all about communication, this story is catnip. I am excited to
0: read it. It's it's new to me. It's definitely something that should be on my radar, so I'm definitely going to pick that up. It sounds, again, very similar. You said it's sort of an intellectual successor to The Handmaid's Tale, and it sounds very, very similar. One of the things that we also probably should talk about because of things like The Handmaid's Tale and Vox here is that one of the features of dystopia is often the express oppression of women. Absolutely. And... I think that that stems from the fact that number one, much, I won't say all, but much of the best dystopian fiction is written by women. And it's specifically written by women to deal with the kinds of oppression that women face every day in our actual society that they can't talk about in terms of our
1: actual society, because then people won't read it. Right. And. In many ways, it's a way to couch the actual oppression that they're feeling in ways that are consumable by men or consumable to men. Because I've known many male students, even male friends, who read a dystopian novel written by a woman or a dystopian story, and they think, wow, this would suck. And women are like, (laughs) "Yeah, yeah, it really does. It really does. It super sucks. It does. Trust me, it's what I live. So, I mean, this is valuable. The idea of the dystopian narrative is valuable for social justice movements. That's why you see not just women, but people of color, Jewish Americans, Jewish writers using this methodology to get across the idea of oppression, to put the reader who often is a member of the the dominant group into the position of someone who is not dominant. Which is why sometimes those things converge in
0: ways that are really awesome. Marie Lu, I don't know if you're familiar with Marie Lu. Marie Lu wrote a series of books, starts with Legend is the first one, Prodigy is the second one, Champion is the third one, I'm pretty sure. But she is an Asian writer, I want to say she's Asian American, but I don't know her life, so I don't want to put that out there. But I do know that she is Chinese. I don't know if she's a Chinese author or if she's a Chinese American author. But her books are about dystopian society, but they also have this element of racial tension that runs through them as well. Because we oftentimes get dystopian stories in which the protagonist is still just an attractive white person. (laughs) So (laughs) that is another perennial feature of dystopian stories. If you think about the hunger games, for example, the hunger games is written as though Katniss several times in the first book says she's nothing to look at. Her hair is a drab black color. Her skin is a drab olive color. To me, both of those things read Latina. And then we get Jennifer Lawrence in the movie. Blonde hair, blue eyed Jennifer Lawrence, who looks like Jennifer Lawrence. Or you think of Harry Potter, where Harry is this skinny kid with glasses and his hair's all over the place or whatever and Hermione shows up with these giant teeth and this big bushy hair and Ron's this red-headed stepchild kid and then it goes to the movies and it's Daniel Radcliffe and it's Rupert Grint and it's Emma Watson yes legitimate supermodel Emma Watson
1: Oh I woke up like this.
0: We can sort of say well that's the Hollywood model or whatever but the Hollywood model is set up for these dystopian stories to feature the trials and tribulations of attractive white people. Divergent uh, is another attractive white people story. And so when dystopia layers on an element of race as well, those stories become infinitely more rich and interesting because they are not just stories about gender or economic oppression, but there are also stories about the racial oppression that would continue to exist even in dystopic societies. So the racial oppression that people are feeling in actual contemporary society gets carried over into those racial narratives continuing as dystopian societies.
1: And that's why I think the adaptation of Fahrenheit 451 is so brilliant because Michael B Jordan is the protagonist and now you have that extra element of someone from a non-dominant class now being forced into the role of oppressor, at least that's where he starts, and now you have that internal dichotomy of I am oppressed, my people are oppressed, but I have been given as an individual, the opportunity for power. And now it's kind of like, the the one thing that I can think of is the, the Samuel L. Jackson character from Django Unchained mm. of, yes, everyone who is like me is being oppressed, but in order to, for my own individual sake, I'm going to sell them out. Uh, right. I'm going to to make nice with the dominant group. And in most dystopias, there's almost always that character of, I'm going to join with the oppressors because it's just easier.
0: It's also why one of my favorite and also one of my most frustrating dystopian narratives is Ready Player One. <laughs> you and I have talked extensively about Ready Player oh, One yeah. outside of outside of this conversation, but Ready Player One is both my favorite and least favorite of the dystopian narratives narratives because it is so smart and well-researched and well thought out. I It's well-written and I am completely engrossed in the narrative. And at the same time, it is expressly shutting me out of being a part of the narrative because it is so white. It's so very white. And people say, well, well, what about H? H is a black woman. And I say, yeah, but H doesn't win. Wade wins. H can't do anything other than aid Wade in his victory, which actually makes H a character that in academic circles we refer to as the Magic Negro. That is, Magic Negro stories are stories in which people of color show up and they have some sort of power or they're really good at things or they have some sort of knowledge, but they can't use that power or knowledge or skill to help themselves. They can only use it in service to our white hero. If you think about H in Ready Player One, she certainly fits that category. But you could also think about, I mean, there are Magic Negroes throughout. Morgan Freeman has played the Magic I was going to say Morgan Freeman. Just... Se- several <laughs> times. The Legend of Bagger Vance. The Green Mile. The Green Mile, where it is literally a magic negro. Yes. John Coffey literally has magic powers that he can only use to help Tom Hanks's character. He can't use them for himself. By the way, that story completely plagiarized. I don't know if anybody knows that. One of my favorite Hollywood Easter eggs, so to speak. John Coffey's character was originally played by Patrick Swayze in an episode of the television series Amazing Stories, which was Steven Spielberg's. Twilight Zone anthology series from the early 1980s, there is an episode of that in which Patrick Swayze plays the John Coffey character in the exact same story. It is the most blatant plagiarism I've ever seen. Amazing Stories, by the way, this is a total sidetrack, but Amazing Stories has been plagiarized multiple times, openly, blatantly plagiarized multiple times
1: in big, huge Hollywood movies. Including, to some extent, Ready Player One. Including Ready Player One, (laughs) to some extent. You are correct. (laughs) There was an episode in which a guy becomes obsessed with his television uh, and all of the characters. And then actual, the the characters show up in his living room, including Kit from Knight Rider and Lou Ferrigno as the um, Incredible Hulk. And Gary Coleman is there. And they're like, hey. And eventually uh, he chooses that life in opposition to the one he's
0: actually living because his wife is terrible and his job is terrible and blah, blah, blah. And eventually he chooses the
1: television life. Right. Which is kind of the inverse of Ready Player One because they're like, (laughs) on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we shut off the the Oasis. It's like, okay, everybody has to go outside now. Problem solved. Prior to starting recording, you
0: and I went through an exercise of talking through dozens, shall we say, of... Dystopian stories, and coming down to what we think is probably the most underrated and most quintessential dystopian story, and that is Demolition, Demolition Man. Man. Yes.
1: 1993 the most accidentally brilliant movie of all time. Although I know that you 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 argue that it is just actually brilliant. I think it is intentionally brilliant. You think it is accidentally brilliant, but that's okay because we end up in the
0: same place. Yeah. It is the very best worst movie you will ever see. As a film, if you just sit there and you watch the film from beginning to end, it is a fairly terrible movie. However, if you go into the film with the thought of this is an intentional dystopian story in which all of the characters that you're supposed to like are an integral part of the dystopia itself. And the one character you're supposed to not like is actually the foil to the dystopia. You begin to realize, oh, the people who made this were really smart. Really, really smart.
1: Either they were really, really smart or... It's the the broken clock, (laughs) which is, they they just started throwing things in and asking themselves (laughs) in the writer's room, you know, what would suck? Well, it would suck if, you know, you couldn't have a hamburger. Uh, It would suck if everything was Taco Bell. It invokes
0: another of Wesley Snipes' films, which has one of my favorite lines, a thing that I still say regularly just in my everyday life, which is... Sun even shines on a dog's ass some of the times. Yes. yes. <laughs> so it could it could quite possibly be that as well. It could quite possibly be as you say, broken clock, right? Ain't nothing but a chicken wing on a string. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Demolition Man, which at this point should be nobody, nobody should be unfamiliar with Demolition Man. But if you are. Let me catch you up to 1993. So Demolition Man is a film. It stars Sylvester Stallone. It stars Sandra Bullock. Wesley Snipes is the villain. And then a whole bunch of character actors that you would recognize, including Dennis, Dennis Leary, in one of his only big screen roles. Jack Black is an extra. <laughs> Jack Black is an extra. Glenn Shaddix who is the guy from Beetlejuice. He played Otho in Beetlejuice. He has a a key character role here as well uh, as Associate Bob, who I love. I think he's so great.
1: He has Um, a very uh, definite character type in all the movies that he plays. He's he's always the same character. Jesse Ventura has a cameo in this towards the end. Pre-governor, yes.
0: Pre-governor, post-Predator Ventura. Uh, is in this so demolition man is the story of a police officer this is sylvester stallone's character and he is known for blowing things up in order to catch the bad guy he tries to do the right thing and things just get demolished and at the very beginning of the film wesley snipes who plays simon phoenix who is one of the best villains uh in in cinematic history um, cosign simon phoenix has captured a city bus full of people and sylvester stallone goes in to capture him and accidentally but in the in the fight between him and wesley snipes they accidentally blow up the building and kills all the bus passengers or whatever and so john spartan is sentenced to you know, the maximum penalty in the cryo prison. Because in Demolition Man, the way that the justice system works is they freeze you in ice and they
1: reprogram your brain to be more useful to society. Right, and we should also set up that the, the movie came out in 1993. It takes place in 1996. It opens in 1996. In the far off, the future, far off future of 1996. And the first thing that we see... Is the Hollywood sign on fire? And most of Los Angeles is already this it, it's it is a dystopia. It's what we would think of as the typical dystopian. It is a burning narrative. wasteland. City on fire, and not the technological blade runner <laughs> sort of future. It's it's basically the imagery that we saw from the LA riots.
0: It is regular, dirty Los Angeles on fire right so john spartan is sentenced to prison and so is simon phoenix and so they are in the cryo prison we fast forward 36 years. The city of Los Angeles has been combined with the city of San Francisco into a metroplex. San Angeles mm-hmm. is our is our new dystopian city. After
1: the big earthquake of uh, 2010. The cities
0: are combined and under the leadership of a central figure. And so because... Los Angeles, San Diego, and Santa Barbara are now one city under Raymond Cocteau. The way that Raymond Cocteau has taken over that city is through his brand of sort of pacifism and restraint, pacifism and control. So everything that is bad is bad and therefore illegal. Right.
1: So salt, sugar, Bacon. Cigarettes. Cursing. A hamburger. Uh, sex. Like actual physical Toilet sex, paper. Toilet paper.
0: All of it is illegal in the new San Angeles. There's a group of people who live underground. And these people are led by Edgar Friendly. And Edgar Friendly, who is Dennis Leary's character is this rebel who keeps showing up and they spray graffiti on walls and they steal stuff and whatever. And they live in this underground society and they're a big menace to the above ground, regular utopia. And so all of a sudden Simon Phoenix is broken out of prison. And everyone says it's because Edgar Friendly has broken him out of prison in order to wreak havoc on the society. And, of course, because they are such pacifists and because the cops in this future society don't ever have to do anything or whatever, Simon Phoenix goes on this murder spree because he can, because the police don't know how to handle him.
1: Rob Schneider plays a, a small role and he says, we're police officers, we're not trained to handle this kind of violence. (laughs) <laughs> right. Which which should tell you everything you need to know about this society. The main protagonist cop in this
0: story is Lenina Huxley, who is played by Sandra Bullock. And Lenina Huxley and her bosses get together and they decide that the only way to catch Simon Phoenix is to use the person who caught Simon Phoenix in the first place the last time, and that is John Spartan. So they go back to the cryo prison and they thaw out... Sylvester Stallone, they thought out John Spartan, and they give him a badge and they tell him, we need you to go catch Simon Phoenix. And they don't like any of the way that uh, John Spartan is going to catch Simon Phoenix. They like nothing about it.
1: With the exception of Sandra Bullock, who has fetishized the 20th century. And by 20th century, I mean 1993 specifically. And she has this apartment that's just full of crap. From the
0: 1990s, and she listens to 1990s commercial jingles as her music, and she is very much looked down upon by all of her friends because she has this romanticism for the sort of dirty 1990s. Right. So it turns out that Simon Phoenix was actually released by Cocteau so that he could go kill Edgar Friendly and smash the underground resistance to this dystopian society. When John Spartan follows Simon Phoenix down into the sewers, he realizes, Oh, actually these people are, aren't stealing randomly. They're stealing food. They're trying to maintain their free society underground because they don't fit into Cocteau's master plan for this pacifistic utopia. And, In the end of the film, they end up merging the two societies. Edgar Friendly is going to be in charge of, you know, both the above ground and the below ground. And everybody loosens up and that's the, you know, it's better to be free than to be a part of this utopia where everything is restricted.
1: Right. And this is definitely a film that, at least initially sets off this idea this dichotomy of you can have freedom or you can have order you can't have both up until the end where you get a synthesis and and we don't know what's going to happen because of course the last thing is Sandra Bullock grabs Sylvester Stallone and kisses him and you know that's that's the end and then we get Sting playing us out <laughs> or Peter Gabriel right. or whoever it was. No, it sting. It stings. Stings yeah, it's Demolition Sting. It's Sting's Demolition Man. Yep. It's called yeah. It's
0: so it is again. It's a it's a pretty white people dystopia. Sandra Bullock in her early prime. Pre-speed. You know, Sandra Bullock. Right. Pre-speed. She has had several peaks in her career. Demolition Man certainly. uh I don't know that she would consider it a peak, but I sure do. Um, it's a good start, and it's a, it's a great start. Uh, Sylvester Stallone right in his prime wesley snipes right on the upswing this is pre-blade but post major league so he is sort of becoming a a a big figure we get a very young benjamin bratt yes in this film Uh, dennis leary kind of at the peak of his stand-up routine yeah but it's it's really important to for the point that i'm trying to make to understand Wesley Snipes is the villain, and Benjamin Bratt is completely incompetent in every way. Yes, and so uh, both the only two characters of color that have major roles in this, uh, aside from a character actor whose name I forget who plays,
1: uh, he's a young cop, and then he's an old cop. Right, the the cop that kind of bridges the gap between, and he says, "Oh, hey, John Spartan, remember me?" He's the guy who remembers
0: John Spartan, right. right? So those are the only three major characters of color we get, and none of them are central to the plot at all. None of them matter, except for Wesley Snipes, who is, again, the villain of the story. So it is a, it is a, a, a pretty white people story. But the underlying thesis of this film is the libertarian ideal that becomes the central narrative for almost every dystopian story that follows it, it is the blueprint for the idea that freedom is what defines a "quote unquote" real society,
1: and control is only ever bad. Yeah, and you you brought up the characters of color, uh, which for me makes this movie really, really problematic. Because we don't get a whole lot of – they pay lip service to the backstory of how it went from scuzzy dystopic Los Angeles on fire to now everything is clean and bright and wonderful and there's no crime whatsoever. The last murder that they had was like seven years earlier or something like that. And what we find when they go down underneath into the sewers is that – all of the people of color are down there. Yes. <laughs> like, right. Like, and no one, no one above ground speaks Spanish, but when they go down there, the, the first person that they run into is making rat burgers. <laughs> and, and they That's ask the car is a, <laughs> a rat burger. Pretty good. Right. <laughs> but if you look at all of the extras outside of, you know, Jack Black and um, Dennis Leary, that they're all people of color. So the question becomes: we're, we're told that they went down there because they don't like the San Angeles, the the control. They don't like the, like singing. And I'm an Oscar Mayer wiener. They 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 want to have freedom. But did they really? Did they really make this choice to go down to the sewers, or were they forced down into the sewers? And that's what makes the. Above ground, such a paradise is because all of the undesirables are now underground, A.K.A. the brown people, right?
0: But we are also then expressly told that even in that framework, all those brown people are being led by white Dennis Leary. Yes,
1: <laughs> because of course, who else would be the leader? <laughs> right, right. Uh, and it's it's very similar to uh, the Purge series which we find out in the in the first purge movie which is not great it wastes a lot of potential it's just a home invasion movie but we get the the this world building of a one night everything is legal right. and we we kind of wonder as an audience well, how did that happen and then over the, the the ensuing films which actually get progressively better we realize that the whole idea were these new founding fathers in this dystopic society wanted to eliminate basically minorities and homeless people. Because if you get rid of all the rules, the people with all of the resources are going to be the ones who are the victors. If I have, if I own all of the guns and you can't afford guns and it becomes a free for all, I'm going to win. And, and I think that that's the, one of the problems also with demolition man, or at least with the the libertarian thesis of not everybody's going to be starting at the same starting point if if you just get rid of all of the rules. Right. And that is another problematic element of this movie. The, the other thing is we, we mentioned how oppression of women is often one of the themes of, of dystopic uh, narratives. And in this case we get, I think two female characters who speak not to each other. There's Sandra Bullock. Yes. And then there is this woman who's at Taco Bell who calls John Spartan a savage or something like that. But she doesn't speak to Sandra Bullock and so they don't talk to each other. Those are the only two female characters I think that speak. Well, there's also the there's also the burger seller. The burger seller.
0: And there's a naked girl who shows up on Yes. John Spartan's camera. She has one line. I think it's Oh
1: Sorry. Oh Sorry. Yes.
0: And there's the computer that says Murder, Death, Kill. (laughs)
1: Computer voice. Yes. The computer
0: voice. And I think that, I think that, the five, I think those are the five female characters. And I think four of them all together only have
1: five or six lines yeah, like 30 seconds of screen time probably yes. total uh so all the rest of it is just Sandra, Sandra Bullock. Bullock and I think the problematic thing with her is we're allowed to like her she, we're, she's allowed to represent femaledom because she is in many ways a masculine character like she earns his respect because he sees her kicking this bad guy's ass and he asks her he says, hey, that's really impressive. Where'd you learn how to kick like that? And she says, Jackie Chan movies. Um, <laughs> right. So, uh, but then of course, when it comes down to him having to face off with Simon Phoenix, you can't have Sandra Bullock around. So he tases her and leaves her unconscious body there and then yes. runs off to to fight the bad guy, which again, it's just really <laughs> kind of gross <laughs> and the way that she's treated. Yes.
0: I think that's a fair assessment.
1: But, and it's definitely written by that kind of teenage boy mentality of she is the perfect woman. Cause of course, you know, she's beautiful. It's, it's Sandra Bullock, of course, right. but also she's into all of these cool things because she fetishizes the, the 1990s. But, but then again,
0: secretly smart. Because, yes. yes, it's written sort of from this teenage boy point of view, but a very well-read teenage boy. I mean, so the character, Lenina Huxley, is named after Lenina Crown, which is the character in Brave New World, which was written by Aldous written by Huxley. Aldous Huxley. Yeah. So Lenina Huxley is a direct homage to Brave New World, which is one of the classic dystopian stories. So, yeah, it's sort of this teenage boy, but it's teenage boy who reads,
1: I also have that kind of same problem with Ready Player One, which is all of the popular culture is the boys' popular culture. <laughs> yes. It's, it's Transformers, it's G.I. Joe, <laughs> and nothing about My Little Pony. Nothing, right. about, you know, nothing that would appeal to young girls at the time. But it, it does kind of make sense because the, the guy who has created the Oasis was very much that loner boy. But in, in this case, there's also... One of the criticisms of the San Angeles of 2032 is that it is highly feminized. Yes. That it's collectivist and it's – in fact, Wesley Snipes even has this this monologue that he does about the wussification of society. Because it's part of the – it's the problem with this future utopia
0: is that it is right. so feminine.
1: That men are not manly enough. Right. Uh, so we have to go back into the past – When men were men. To catch this manly criminal. Right. And there's this running joke about uh, John Spartan being reprogrammed as a seamstress. Right. (laughs) And and he's embarrassed and ashamed of it because that's a woman's thing. His His training while he is asleep is to knit. Yes. And so
0: he comes out being able to knit, which I think is... And it's a problem for him. It's a problem for
1: his masculinity. It does have a, a few good moments where Sandra Bullock's character will call out that that hypermasculinity. In fact, the toxic masculinity when that that side character that I, I we can't remember recognizes John Spartan and they bond and John Spartan's kind of. Doing that playful male insulting thing. Right. And Benjamin Bratt says, well, they seem to like each other, but he keeps insulting him. I don't understand this. And Sandra Bullock says, well, if you had read my paper on this, you would (laughs) recognize that this is a a male bonding. from This is how how men used to bond
0: in the 1990s.
1: Yes. (laughs) Which... Another thing about this is they keep referring to him as prehistoric and primitive and savage. Right. And it was it was only like thirty six years ago, so it's it's from today to like risky business. <laughs> right. It's, it's the distance there, or you know, don't stop believing, or something? <laughs> yeah, the
0: the terrible days of the early nineteen eighties. Yes. So, a couple of things that I want to hit before we run out of time. Number one, again, as I said at the very beginning of this conversation, I think you and I can only really enjoy Demolition Man because of the inherent privilege that we have as human beings in this society. It's difficult to crave stories of dystopia when you live in an actual dystopia. Our dystopia is a soft dystopia. There are hard dystopias on this planet where they don't care about The Hunger Games, they don't care about Demolition Man. Their life is Demolition Man right now. So it is a a, sort of a marker of privilege to be able to enjoy these stories in the first place. But I also think that people crave these stories because they understand this utopian, so to speak, world that we actually live in is falling apart. It's falling apart at the seams because of the manner in which this dystopia was created in the first place. So we live in a fear state right now, um, or as I often call it, a phobiocracy. The the United States of America is currently a phobiocracy. It is built entirely on the premise that we should be afraid of everything and everyone, particularly the people who are not like us, which is a hardcore element of (laughs)
1: dystopia. Right. Everybody. You should be afraid of everybody except for the people who are actually harming you.
0: (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's the it's the foreign immigrants taking your jobs. You should be afraid of not the people who look exactly like you who are suppressing your wages systematically for their own benefit. I I think that that's an important thing that we shouldn't lose is that we turn to these stories about dystopia, I believe, In order to assuage our own fears about the way that our utopian society is rapidly turning into a dystopia. So we can say, well, yeah, our wages are stagnant and we're putting kids in cages at the border, but at least we're not sending our children off to fight in the Hunger Games.
1: Right. At least you're not wearing a a Fitbit that electrocutes you if you go over 100 words. At least
0: you're not carrying around 40 pounds of chains because you're a little bit stronger than your neighbor.
1: Right. And just a couple of things. First, that Demolition Man in particular is instructive in that a person's dystopia is kind of dependent on their value system. (laughs) Like when the, the, the movie first opens up and Los Angeles is on fire, that to me is the dystopia. And when we move forward 30 years or so, and everything is okay, with the exception of the freedom that we don't have, like, but there's no crime. Everyone seems to have health care. Uh, everyone seems to be doing fine. This looks like a utopia. But to a libertarian, like, that is the dystopia. They're a group of people that I tend to interact with both in person and online that would prefer the 1996 LA on fire as long as they can have a hamburger versus the 2032 we haven't had a murder since seven years ago, but also you can't have salt. But everyone's a vegan, right? But everyone's a vegan. I mean, yesterday, as of this recording, Pierce Morgan... (laughs) was tweeting out the fact that he he went and ordered something that had meat in it to own the own the vegans. Even though really the only thing was he was protesting that there's this the chain that now has a, a vegan option. Something that he doesn't have to order, something that he's not forced into eating. Something that affects him exactly zero. Zero. It costs him zero dollars to mind his own business. Right. But in order to, as conservatives like to say, virtue signal he tweeted out that he was ordering this big meal of meat. I'm ordering the sausage roll because it's not vegan to own the libs. But that goes back to the, the idea of, you know, the tremendous privilege that we have. I mean, if that's his worst worry (laughs) that someone else has a food option that he doesn't like, that's a charmed life, (laughs) right? Like if that's his worst, his worst problem that he sees that day, that's a charming life.
0: Which, by the way, the alternative is true as well. Yeah. If if your problem is veganism, that comes from an incredible place of privilege that you can select to not eat most of the food on the planet by choice because you have so many food options that not eating something is an actual choice you're able to make.
1: Absolutely. And there's a uh, there's a very good YouTuber by the name of Peter Coffin who actually does the series on both socialism and veganism and how veganism in and of itself is also very privileged and, and it's difficult to to weigh those two things if you are someone in that social justice sphere because many times when you are when you are for social justice causes, a lot of those don't overlap. A lot of those are at odds with one another. Uh, I always hear from you know, people like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson that on the left, there's no dissent. There's no, there's no argument on the left. They do nothing but circular firing squad. <laughs> yes. That's all, all people on the left do all day is fight with each other. I have lost track
0: of the number of times that I have said out loud, the problem with being a social justice educator is other social justice educators.
1: Yes yeah people on the left don't have time to fight with people on the right because they're so busy fighting with each other, with each other. exactly yes. exactly but somehow there's no dissent
0: it's the it's the secret dirty secret of liberalism is that yes. liberals hate liberals way more than they hate conservatives
1: the the, the second thing about dystopias is it one of the reasons why we are so attracted to them is because it does provide, in many cases, a template for how to deal with the things that are going down. We, we talked about Harry Potter and how that's a dystopia. It's Even if you argue that it's not a dystopia starting out, it definitely is by the time that Voldemort returns.
0: Yeah, but it's a dystopia before that, too. I mean, this is society, much like our own, built on slavery. Right, like that's a the that's a slave society. The house elves are slaves, and whether or not you can afford a slave is a marker of your
1: position within that society. And yeah. even if you can't afford a slave, you're still in favor of slavery, like right. Ron Weasley. Exactly. <laughs> like his family doesn't have a slave.
0: They have a ghoul. They can afford a ghoul. That's that's the best they can do.
1: Right, but. When it comes to Hermione saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't enslave these people, Ron's the first one to say, oh, no, they like it. Right. And the second one to say it is Hagrid,
0: who who is an oppressed class of people within the society, but at least he ain't a house elf.
1: Right. And that's, again, one of these thematic elements of dystopia, which is there's always an element below you. So there's always that choice for the main character to choose to either side with the the oppressive elements or to side with the people below you. Animal Farm is like that too. Right. Like the, the the first thing you do once you crawl out of the bottom is you put your boot in the face of the people below you so they can't get up to with you. Animal Farm is such an
0: interesting dystopia because it's either about communism or it's about capitalism depending on which side of the equation you side with.
1: Right. And that goes back to the idea of your values inform how you read this text. Right.
0: Like everyone reads it as, oh, this is what communism does. This small group of people who rise up together. This other group breaks off and then oppresses that group of people. I'm like, actually, that's the story of capitalism. It's the story of we're all supposed to work together for everyone's benefit, except there's a smaller group of people who only work for their own benefit and then exploit the labor of everybody else so that they can get rich that's the story of capitalism not the story of communism
1: in in the same way that i read demolition man in a totally antithetical way to the way that it's intended <laughs> oppositional, because, oppositional oppositional reading yes we we call it oppositional because we're told that the people who are in the sewers are there by choice they went down there to avoid the oppression that they felt above ground even though the oppression that they feel is you know not eating a hamburger right So they opt to go down below, but then they come back when it doesn't work out because they're all starving to steal the food from the people who are living in the utopia. So it's one of those things where if the argument is that libertarianism is great, this is not a good argument for that. Because (laughs) the people who leave and say, I don't need your society. Can't sustain themselves without the other society. Yes. So yeah, there's some... (laughs) There's there's some issues with that. I that is say. a
0: very that is a very keep your government hands off of my Medicare kind of situation. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this delivers us to our place that we always end up, which is at the end of the day, dystopian narratives. What?
1: At the end of the day, dystopian narratives are a society's way of both warning the next generation of the potential dangers of falling too far either into order or into chaos. And they also provide a template for what to do when those types of societies start to erect themselves. If you look at someone like Hermione or if you look at someone like Harrison Bergeron, they not only tell us that this is a potential danger. But when this starts to happen, this is how you fight back against that. And I think that that is the value of dystopian fiction. I agree with all of that.
0: I think at the end of the day, the other thing to add to that is that dystopian fiction has always provided a way for people in contemporary society to deal with the natural denigration of the society in which they live. So... Societies, particularly societies that are built on being an empire, those societies fail eventually. Necessarily, those societies fail. Every empire that has ever existed in the history of the world has fallen and failed. Every single one. People within Western civilization, particularly within the United States, believe that will never happen to us. Even though the historical record of mankind is completely against the idea of sustained empire. So, if you think of the English, the Dutch, the French, the Romans, the Romans. Greeks, the Byzantines, the Ottomans, the Chinese emperors, the Japanese emperors, the it, pick a pick a an empire, it doesn't exist anymore in the way that it did before. Yes, there is still Rome. Yes, there is still Greece. Yes, there is still the United Kingdom, England, France still exists. But they do not exist in the empirical sense that they did at the height of their empirical power. The United States will not last forever as the world's quote-unquote only superpower. That is not going to exist. And I think dystopian literature is preparatory for people in how to deal with the day that this dystopia implodes, because that's what dystopias do, they implode. And so I really think that dystopian fiction, the reason particularly young people always attach themselves to dystopian stories is because they can sense in some way it won't be fiction for too much
1: longer. And that's why you see, particularly in the West, we see more dystopic fiction. Most of the things that we've talked about have been either from the United States or from England. And that's not just because those are the only things that we selected. If you look at dystopias from Japan, they're not really or, – or future societies in things like anime – it's not really presented as dystopic in the same way because it's a different set of values. Those are dystopia by technology
0: almost always. Right, right. Ours is always dystopia by ideology. Japanese dystopias are almost always by technology.
1: The idea that we are becoming more disconnected as humans, which is one of the reasons why Blade Runner is so interesting because that's kind of the thesis of Blade Runner, which is technology is going to separate us as humans, which is actually... (laughs) Pretty Prussian.
0: <laughs> or or Gattaca or any of Gattaca. those those sort of technological dystopias. So we're we're ending on a yeah, we're ending on a low note, so to speak, <laughs> as we probably you could have guessed at the outset talking about dystopia. But I do want to thank my guest, Dustin Denaway, this week. And I want to thank you, dear listener, for hanging out with us until the end of this thing. For Dustin Dunaway, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. This has been The Deconstruction Workers. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out TheDeconstructionWorkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the deconstruction workers or Twitter at podcast DCW. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. The deconstruction workers is recorded on the beautiful university of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.